We are uh, at that point in our service now where we, uh, we come together and we look at the Scriptures together. And we are starting this morning uh, a new series on the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a beautiful, complex, robust view of the early church. It's the acts of Jesus through His Spirit in and among His people. And so we are looking forward to it as we see how the church, filled with the Spirit of God, does the mission of God. And so here for us this morning, we have the first chapter and the first verses of Acts chapter 1, starting in verses 1 to 11, and here to read the word, Annabeth. Our reading today is from Acts 1, 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was university, and I was seriously considering becoming a Christian. And I remember talking to one of the other students who was a new Christian about her journey from atheism to Christianity. And as she described her journey, knowingly or not, in her story, she was revealing some of the main issues I had with becoming a Christian. And the same issues I had then remain now, 37 years later, in growing deeper as a Christian. The main problem that she highlighted and revealed was the problem of doubt. I doubted that Jesus was God. I doubted that He really cared for me, and I doubted that He could really change me. These doubts were stopping me from becoming a Christian, and she put her finger on it when she said more or less these words. I don't have a tape of what she said, but I remember it it clearly. She said, when I was learning about Jesus and God, I realized that I needed someone in my life who would never let me down. Everyone in my life has let me down. But I doubted that God would really be there for me. And Dan, here's the thing. When I invited Jesus into my life, I wasn't sure his plan was better for me than the one I had. But here's the thing. Dan, you doubt 
So did I. People, they will always let you down. The only person who has never let me down is Jesus. That's the point that Jesus is making and Luke is making here, that Jesus will never let his people down despite our doubts. And here, in these words, to a group of disciples who are about to see Jesus leave and have doubts about their ability to handle life without Jesus being around, he gives us three encouragements to help us with the doubts that we all face. Because you, like me, face these doubts wherever you are in your journey of faith, don't you? Sometimes you doubt that Jesus really rose from the dead and is God. Sometimes you doubt that God is really with you and will empower you. And sometimes you doubt that he really loves you. So here, let us look at these encouragements that he gives. He gives us three encouragements. Firstly, Jesus really rose from the dead. Accept his divinity. Secondly, Jesus really will empower us when he's gone. Align to his plan. And thirdly, Jesus is really going to come back one day because he loves us so much. Anticipate his return. Accept his divinity, align to his plan, anticipate his return. Here we go. Accept his divinity. First couple of verses, Luke describes to Theophilus, the one he wrote it to, some things about Jesus and refers back to his first writing his first book, the Gospel of Luke. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What Luke is saying here is that I had already told you in my gospel that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm summarizing what I told you. And Luke 24, Luke describes multiple appearances by Jesus after he had died where he had physically risen from the dead. What's Luke doing here? He's reminding Theophilus, who's a young Christian and probably doubting, like many of us doubt, that Jesus really rose from the dead. He's saying Jesus isn't some crazy deluded teacher who thought he was more than he was and then died. Jesus isn't some God on a pantheon of gods with some weird mythical life story that cannot be verified. No, Jesus is not like any of those. He has a historical beginning, a recorded life, a known and recorded historically verified death and a historically verifiable resurrection. He is who he said he is. Throughout history, millions of people have doubted this. Thousands of books have been written to try and disprove it, but they haven't. Why? Because the more historians have delved into the evidence, the more they've found this. Firstly, that the New Testament is historically reliable. Continuous historical research has shown that the New Testament documents are not myths. They are actual history. The geographical and political references they cite are dead on. The rulers they mention were ruling at the time that they mentioned them. Oxford professor of ancient history A.N. Sherwin-Wright wrote these words about this book and Luke's writings. He says, the historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, details are precise and correct. 
As documents, these narratives belong to the same historical series as the records of provincial and imperial trials in epigraphical and literary sources of the first century. This is good history. Now, historians don't agree with the resurrection because they don't think miracles can happen. But they don't have what most scientific and historical scholars look for, which is the best explanation of historical events. Because the best explanation of the historical events that happened after Jesus died is that he rose again. Let me give you some of the pieces of evidence. Firstly, we have the evidence of the disciples. The disciples after he died were fearful and hidden, thinking that their faith was not true, thinking that they had been deluded, thinking that Jesus really wasn't the Messiah they thought he was. A couple days later, they are proclaiming that he rose from the dead and they've seen him. They cause a great commotion in the midst of Jerusalem, a colony of Rome. The disciples' lives are changed. Here's the question. Eleven of the twelve original apostles are known in history to have died violent deaths of martyrdom for proclaiming Jesus is physically risen from the dead. Would you die for a lie that you knew was a lie? It doesn't make sense of the historical record. Secondly, how do you explain that the governments who were in power, the Roman were in power and the Jewish people under them were in subsidiary power, both of those did not want the resurrection to be true. Both of those could easily have refuted it by simply exhuming the body. How come it was never refuted? Because there was no body to exhume. That's why. And how do you explain the conversion of Paul, a Pharisee, part of the Jewish cultural and religious elites specifically tasked with refuting the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul, in fact, was Saul, and his role, as far as we can tell, was to persecute and stamp out this Christian heresy. And yet, after doing it for a little while, he suddenly comes out and says, I have met Jesus physically risen from the dead, and I've gone from chief antagonist to chief defender. How do you explain that kind of life change? Paul, of course, wrote most or or the majority of the letters in the New Testament. The best explanation is simple. He actually physically rose from the dead. I know it's countercultural today to believe in miracles. It was then to believe in this miracle. It is now to believe in any miracle. But you and I both know that when the culture gets hostile, when your colleagues start maybe dismissing religion in general. When people remind us of the sins and wrongs of the institutional church as we have this week with our orange shirts, it's easy to begin to doubt. Is it really worth it to follow a Jesus that makes me swim against the tide of my culture and makes me have to deal with the misunderstandings, the accusations, the responses. Is he really worth it? Yes, he is, because he really is risen from the dead. He really is God. Secondly, we're not just to accept the verdict of history and the truth of his divinity. Secondly, we're to align the pl- to the plan of this God. He says here, while he... 
Verse 4, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, no, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, I have a different plan for you, and it's a harder plan than the one you're hoping for. I'm not restoring the physical kingdom of Israel. I'm not taking political temporal power. I'm not overthrowing Rome. I'm leaving you. You're leaving us. I'm leaving you. Well, how are we supposed to do this? Ah, doubt. Don't you doubt sometimes that Jesus is with you because he's not physically in front of you? Don't you doubt sometimes that Jesus is giving you the power to be his witnesses in a culture that's skeptical as ours is and with your own frailties and your own brokenness and your own sin? Don't you doubt that? Don't you feel inadequate for the task? Join the club. That's exactly how I felt 37 years ago when I first became a Christian, and it's exactly how I felt during COVID. It's exactly how I felt countless times. In the midst of our pain, we tend to see life through the lenses of our pain and say, God, where are you? And our culture applauds us looking through the lenses of pain to figure out our truth. But you know, pain comes and goes. Pain pain distorts perspective. The promises of God, not our pain, should determine our perspective. And the promise of God is that the Holy Spirit, it will go in to those who are His. You will not just believe in a leader. You will receive the very Spirit of Jesus within you. And Jesus' response then is the response we need to hear. Scholars have noted that in this passage, that the the gospel go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, he's actually showing the whole progression of the book of Acts. This is the passage which describes architecturally how the book of Acts is structured, no doubt about them. But more specifically and existentially to us, in these verses are the power that we need to live the life we are called to and fulfill the plan we're asked to align to. Two ways that we're given the power through the Holy Spirit. Firstly, when the Holy Spirit comes into us, he tells us this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of spirit of death, the law of sin and death. Do you understand? When the spirit comes into you, The Spirit tells your spirit that Jesus' death and resurrection for you has wiped the slate clean for you. You can hear that, but the Spirit lets you experience that freedom, that lack of condemnation. And I tell you, I can't be a witness when I'm busy condemning myself or feeling condemned by God. But one of the things the Spirit does is He frees us from condemnation And once we're freed from condemnation, he begins to bear the fruit that he says he will. 
And this is the first way that he empowers us. He empowers us to bear fruit. Firstly, he removes condemnation. Secondly, he begins to put into us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit, says Galatians 5.22. These are the fruits of a changed life, and he gives them to you almost, almost from the very beginning, actually from the very beginning of your Christian life. I have seen the Holy Spirit give me power to break the power of many sinful patterns in my life. He can give you that power too. I have also seen the Holy Spirit give me increasing frustration over the remaining things that I do that are sinful in my life. And I don't know about you, but I can sometimes misunderstand this frustration as failure and I can start to condemn myself. And this is what I mean. I have struggled with anger and impatience all of my life that I can remember. Partly this is family of origin stuff from um, the household I was brought into where anger and impatience were just part of the, the rhythm of our family. But I am less angry and less impatient now than I was probably at any time in my life. And yet I'm more frustrated with it. I'm so tired of it. And perhaps you can resonate with that frustration and that weariness with yourself. If you can, and you're a Christian, I can tell you that frustration and that weariness has a name. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you through your emotions so that you really begin to hate that broken, selfish part of you and you really long to be free from it. The power of the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal power, but it's a power that works through your emotions so that you hate that part of you that is corrupt and selfish and wrong, and you long to be free. And when you long to be free, he gives you the power to be free. And so the first way that the Holy Spirit gives us the power to align to his plan is he bears this fruit in us. He tells us there is no condemnation. And then he builds in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. The Spirit is freeing us from condemnation and filling us with his own love, his own joy. A little over a year ago, we had a neighbor uh, just come onto our porch. Some really devastating things that happened to friends of theirs and that person said to us, I need to talk to you. Okay. Because you know God, they said. Sue and I looked at each other. I've been watching you. For over a decade now, I've been watching you, and I know there's something very different about you. Especially you, Sue. You, you're not even a real person. You're like an angel. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. But she noticed the difference, particularly in my wife, and the love and the joy and the peace that my wife exhibited told her that my wife knew God. So she said, tell me about God. I need to know. She bore the, my wife bore the fruit of the Spirit of God in her. And it empowered her without even knowing to be a witness. But secondly, it says, you shall be my witnesses that word, which also means martyr, can be translated either way, that word also means to bear verbal witness to the truth of Jesus. 
And a lot of us in this culture, we don't feel adequate. I I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to uh, annoy or offend. I don't want to get on the wrong side of people. We all feel that way, don't we? So did Peter. Peter, when Jesus was alive and was popular, was right there at his right hand. I'll do anything for you. But when Jesus was on trial, rejected, Peter denied him three times. Why? Because Peter is influenced by his surroundings. Peter was probably a people pleaser. Peter feared the hostility of the crowds. But then the Holy Spirit came upon him. And what was Peter like? Listen to these words of Peter in Acts chapter 4. A man has been healed. The authorities have questioned and challenged Peter and told him to stop doing, and, and Peter says this, excuse me, he says, rulers of the people and elders. So there are rulers and cultural elites in the audience. If we're being examined today, said Peter, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, you hear the courage in that? Whom God raised from the dead, by by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Listen to that courage. Which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. Now, how does a people-pleasing, afraid-of-the-crowd person get this kind of courage? The Spirit of God came into him, and the Spirit of Jesus and the love of Jesus changed him. In Romans 8, 16, it says these words. There is therefore now no, uh, sorry, there, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Peter had experienced a love conversion where the love of God was no longer doubted. The love of Jesus was within him and the Spirit of Jesus was empowering him to bear witness. And he can bear witness through you. Temptation. I'm not sure intellectually I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Temptation. I'm not sure I feel the presence and the power of Jesus to do what he calls me to do. Both of those are real. We all have them. And these encouragements remind us that in Jesus we can overcome them. Finally, there's a, there's a third temptation. It is a temptation to doubt that heaven is real, more real than this earth, that Jesus is reigning there and will return, and so that world is our true home. And the temptation then is to make this world our home, to find all of our hopes and expectations met here. But at the end of this passage, Luke repeats what he had already said in his Gospel of Luke, that Jesus ascends. And he he gives us this picture of Jesus ascending into heaven. While they were gazing into heaven, he went. And two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Luke this time adds something that was not in his gospel, and it's this. A cloud took him out of their sight. Now, a cloud taking him out of their sight means very little to us. It sounds really kind of mystical and superstitious, and if we don't believe in miracles, of course, this doesn't sound true. But I need to tell you, if God exists, miracles are no problem philosophically or scientifically. What Luke wants to say here, though, is that Jesus is ascending to heaven the same way God the Father is described in the Old Testament as riding in kingly glory. He rides with his chariot as the clouds. It's a word picture. It's a metaphor for us to understand that God in his kingly glory transcends the earth. And for Jesus to ride on the same kind of royal chariot is to say that Jesus is going to his royal throne. Luke is saying that Jesus, who is our true home, is going to his home. Jesus, who has made his home with us, is now going to make his home inside of us. And he who has done that and will do that is gone to heaven to prepare a place for us so that he can physically come back and welcome us physically to our new home, our true home, our final home, our home with him and his Father by his Spirit, a new heaven and new earth he is making as a home for you and I. Do you feel this world is your home? Ask a Ukrainian refugee about that. Ask her a survival of the residential school system about that. Ask someone who tried to make it, like Daniel, my friend, who was trying to make it in the GTA and was driving trucks for a living to pay for his wife and kids and then got really bored and his back started to hurt so he started taking drugs and then stronger drugs and then he got addicted to drugs and found himself on the streets divorced and broken Jesus came to this world men and women because it is a place of darkness a world of sorrows a world of sin he came as a man of sorrows to match this world of sorrow He became a man who took the weight and the darkness and the horror of sin and selfishness upon himself. And he took our sin and the guilt of it and felt the sorrow of it. And he hung on the cross and paid the penalty for it and endured the horror and darkness of it, guilty of nothing more than being who he claimed to be. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he claimed to be the way, the truth, the life. The Jews said, you are not our truth. The Romans said, you are not our truth and you will not be our problem. So they killed him and they found out that he isn't their problem. And the Jews found out that their truth wasn't the truth. But Jesus rose from the dead as the truth. And here is the truth about our world. It is too dark. It's too broken. It's too distorted and corrupted by sin and pollution and corruption and selfishness to be a fit home for you. 
You were meant for more. You were made in God's image to live in God's world with God in intimate communion with you. And so Jesus came, the human par excellence, the human that lived with no sin at all. This Jesus, after he died to pay the debt for our sin, this Jesus, after he died for the forgiveness of all of our sin who have faith in him, this Jesus, after he had risen to prove he was the savior of our sin, this Jesus did the only thing that a God-man could rightly do. He left this home of sorrows to go to the home of greatness and light and joy and prepare that home to be our home so that he could come back and bring us home. And there he sits in royal splendor now, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, praying for us, empowering us to be his witnesses to others so that the world will know there is a better home. For he is their home. And he awaits the opportunity to come into their life and then to bring them home. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel saw this scene of ascension from the other side, from the place in the throne room of God when Jesus arrived, and he put it this way. He said, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Men and women, the Jesus who actually rose from the dead, rose from this earth, that we, the the humans who have faith in him, may rise with him and leave this earth to go to a true and final home, because the truth is this, there is a new heaven and a new earth, and they are being prepared in heaven, and they are awaiting the time when Jesus comes to bring them down, and he recreates heaven and earth and makes all things new, and nothing will be evil or wrong or broken about the home that he has prepared for us. We will be without sin or wrong. We will inhabit that world. That is to be our home. That is to be our heart's home. That is to be our longing. So when this world tempts you, as it tempts me, as it tempted them. Remember, remember. He is better still. He is risen. He has given you his spirit. He has empowered you to be his witness. He has gone to heaven to prepare a home. He is, it's all about Jesus. He is coming back to bring you home. Live in those truths and let them encourage you through those temptations to be the people who say that Jesus is better still. His home is better still. His witnesses we shall be. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace to us. May you help us to be better still because you are our treasure. Help us to be your witnesses by your spirit. Help us to resist these temptations, the temptations of doubt, doubting the truth that you are God, doubting the truth that we are 
able to be your witnesses and doubting the truth that another home awaits us that is better still because you are better still. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have time for questions, and I think Ryan has questions from you. All right, we have, yeah, we have a few questions. Um, so this was actually asked at the first service, but um, question is, is the argument that no one would die for a lie really a sufficient reason to support that the gospel is true? Many people die or kill for lies and untruths even today. It's not impossible for someone, even an otherwise reasonable person, to convince themselves that some conspiracy is true. So um, the question is, people do die for lies. The difference between um, the, the circumstances described by the question and the circumstance here is that people delude themselves presently into dying for lies they think are true. What I'm talking about is people deliberately deceiving people into thinking that Jesus rose from the dead, knowing he wasn't, and knowing it was a lie, and then dying for it. Those are vastly different things. I submit to you, if you are deluded into thinking a lie is true, you might die for it. But if you know that you have concocted a lie, you wouldn't die for it. Great question. Okay, next question. In light of the passage today, as Christians who strive to live and promote good, how should we view things right before his return? Will the world continue to improve or will it get worse? <laughs> yes. Uh, that depends on your eschatological view, uh, which is a big techn technical uh, theological term. Uh, I will give you, I won't. Uh, let me say that there are many positions, uh, one of which thinks the world's gonna get worse and worse and worse and then Jesus is gonna come back as the darkness fails, one of which thinks the world's going to get better and better and better and become quite Christian. The first one is a form of premillennialism. The second one is a form called postmillennialism. And then there's the mushy middle, which I fit into, which is in some ways the world will get better and in some ways the world will stay or get worse. And that's probably been the dominant position of Christianity throughout the ages, although perhaps not in North America in the 20th century. The dominant position of Christians through the ages is that. Um, Jesus says, and I paraphrase, you will be my witnesses starting here and to the ends of the earth. What is the difference between a witness, sorry, what is the difference between being a witness and evangelizing? None. Um, you are all, well, the, the difference is evangelism usually means that particular form of bearing witness that is verbal and proclamational. So being an evangelist in most people's eyes is to actually share the gospel verbally. Uh, I don't myself restrict it to that. Bearing witness can be through your actions and your words. I think evangelism can also be. So there you go. One more question. One more question. Okay. Uh, let's see here. There are, there are a few. <laughs> okay, let's do this one. You mentioned that in heaven it is a place without sin. Even as a Christian, uh, sin is in us. So if we go to heaven, wouldn't sin be still present because of us? No. Uh, when you go to heaven, well, let me explain a little bit about your future. 
If you die before Jesus comes back, your body will stay in the ground and decompose. Your spirit will go to be with God and you will spiritually be with God in heaven, but you will be without sin. When Jesus comes back, everyone who believes in Jesus will get their new post-resurrection bodies, which are themselves without sin or brokenness, and they will still experience their new spiritual vitality of being without sin. So you will be body and soul without sin when Jesus comes back, and you will be without sin if you go, if I die right, if, some, if you shoot me right now, Ryan, I will go to be with Jesus spiritually. Don't do that, please. Uh, yes, don't do that. Uh, I will go to see Jesus spiritually and sin will be taken away from me. I will no longer be in a sinful condition. Does that make sense? Okay, great questions. All right, I am going to uh, try and go from there to a song of response. Uh, Come on up. Let us remember that he who died really rose. That he who rose really ascended, that he who ascended is really reigning and really preparing a place, and he loves you. He loves you so much that he is unrelentingly praying for you, he is unrelentingly preparing a place for you, and he is unrelentingly planning to come back for you. If you are not a Christian, none of this is true for you. Please become a Christian. Come and talk to me. If you are a Christian, be encouraged. His spirit is in you to encourage you that all of this is true. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that because of your spirit, we can know beyond a doubt that there is no condemnation. We can know beyond a doubt that we are your beloved adopted children. We can know beyond a doubt that you've given us power through your spirit to be your witnesses. Help us to trust these promises even if our emotions and our circumstances seem to say something different. For our experience is not the truth. Your promises are truer than what we think we experience. Help us to cling to the beauty and the truth that Jesus is better than anything we could ever imagine and he is ours. In Christ's name, amen.